This past week, I was in Indonesia. I do want to give you kind of two lessons from that very short trip. Literally, it was two days to get there, four days there, and two days to get back. So it was pretty quick. But I did get a couple of lessons. One afternoon, I got to spend uh, time with this uh, very phenomenal human being that God has gotten a hold of in the last 20 years. His name is James Riotti. You might know him as the founder of the Lippo Group with his father, which is a big banking uh, company. Well, he became a Christian in 1990. And when he became a Christian, he went to seminary, Westminster, up the road. And when he went back home, he sold a lot of the Lippo uh, banking interest so that he could create a foundation to bring the gospel to Indonesia. Indonesia is the largest Muslim country in the world. And 85% are Muslim, 15% are Christian. And so he is taking his billions of dollars and investing it in starting schools, hospitals, and churches is what this partnership is all about. And, and the lesson that I learned is that one person can make a difference. If God wants to use one human being, you might be saying, well, I don't have billions of dollars. That's not the point. The principle is what we do have, we can invest. You remember the, the parable of the talents. It's not about how many talents. It's about what you do with the talent. Well, that was one lesson. The other lesson was the rich diversity. This conference I attended was called the World Reformed Fellowship, in, in which I, I serve on, on uh uh, the leadership of that, and, and they, uh, they call together about every four years representatives from all of the denominations that are reformed in the world. And so there were 1,200 people in Jakarta of, from Africa and from Asia, obviously, and the United States, uh, South America, and Europe. And, and so you have this kaleidoscope of the church and the church's leadership. The reason I bring that up is I think that's where Paul's getting ready to take us in this text. Paul's turning our attention about the gospel to applying it to life, both inside and outside the church, with people who are different than us. And so if you uh, have a Bible with you and you want to follow along, I'm going to read out of Romans uh, chapter 14, just uh, a little bit at the beginning and a lot at the end, and then a little bit into chapter 15, because uh, Paul is dealing with this a subject of convictions and our differences uh, within the church for that period of time from 14.1 all the way to 15.7. But I won't read it all. I'll just uh, I'll give you a snippet at the beginning and then a long part at the end. Romans 14, verse 1. As for the one who, who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and not let the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Then go down to uh, verse 14. I pick it up there. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. 
For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from the faith is sin. Verse uh, verse 1 of chapter 15, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may be one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And may God help us to understand this, the reading of his word. How do we handle our differences in the church? Paul instructs us, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. But what practically does that mean? What does that look like for us? How do we welcome one another, particularly those that are different from ourselves? Not just ethnically, not just culturally, But even theologically, even in their personal convictions about how they live their lives and how they think the church should be lived in community together. So Paul identifies very quickly a problem, how we have wrongfully tried to solve that problem, how he wants us, how the Lord pictures his church solving that problem and then ultimately where we get the power to live that way. So the problem, what's going on here, there's a dispute that has risen in the church in Rome over eating meat. You see, it's not like they have a a food line and growls and a safe way to choose from. There's one meat market and almost all of the meat that as consumed in Rome had previously been sacrificed to idols before it met to the market. It's, it's what they did. I mean, when you begin to think about sacrifices in the ancient world where they did thousands upon thousands and millions of sacrifices, in your mind, you have to wonder what did they do with all that meat? The priest can't eat it all. And so in order to support the work, they sold it. And when they sold it, the public bought it. And when the public bought it, they didn't see any problem with it. But there were some in the church that had a personal conviction that there was a problem with eating it. It comes from the fact that Leviticus has a list. Leviticus has a a list of, uh, of things that were forbidden for followers of God to eat. 
It was literally called the unclean. What was the purpose of that unclean lid? It had two purposes. One, it was, it was to teach Israel to keep its identity to be holy, separate from the world. It wasn't a legalism. It was just a way to tell the world the, this little band of faithful followers of God were different than everyone else. But secondly, it was to show them that they must be cleansed before they can come before God. Now, in the New Testament, Paul's been teaching us in Romans that it is Christ who has fulfilled both those purposes. It is Christ who has created our identity. It is Christ who is holy for us because we couldn't be holy. It is Christ who cleansed us in order that we have entrance into the presence of God. These two groups of Christians in Rome, those who believed the gospel but could not shake thousands of years of tradition, they felt it was wrong for Christians to eat food on the unclean list. They actually stopped eating meat altogether. That's why it says they ate only vegetables because they wanted it to be safe. They weren't sure when they went into the market, was it kosher or not? And so they just abstained altogether unless they grew it themselves. And you imagine if you're in the city, there's no room for farms. Paul calls them the weak in faith. He makes a negative a judgment about them, a negative evaluation. Then there were those in this same church who believed the gospel just like the other group and saw nothing wrong. They saw that they have freedom in Christ, that Christ has made all things on the unclean list now clean in Christ. And Paul calls them the strong because Christ had fulfilled the purposes of the unclean list. Therefore, they could eat. One group had worked out the gospel implication in this area and the other group had not yet. What made it more complicated, this was two ethnic groups. It wasn't just the two people in the church or, or two families in the church, but literally two ethnic groups. One was the Jewish Christians who came out of that tradition and the Gentiles who also believed. And this, these differences had an impact on how they wanted their community to live together. And so the truth is, even how we view the implications of the gospel, not just the gospel, we're not debating it at EP or, or at a presbytery or, or a general assembly, the essence of the gospel. What we end up debating are the implications of the gospel. And how we apply those implications, how they are worked out in the, in the life of the community and then into the family and into your individual life. And those are called convictions, personal convictions. One solution to that is to be narrow-minded. Obviously, that's what the text is all, Paul is warning at. Don't judge your brother. That is, those of you who believe that you, uh, uh, can't eat meat because it had been sacrificed uh, to idols. Don't look at your brother and condemn him because he has the freedom in Christ. That's kind of a, a, almost a narrow-mindedness to say, because I have this conviction, you need to have this conviction too. The solution to that isn't to run to the other extreme and be broad-minded. 
Broad-mindedness looks at the narrow-mindedness and says, you guys are so legalistic, you just need to come into the broad-minded world. It doesn't matter. Everyone can eat. Therefore, it doesn't recognize the convictions. Paul speaks to both groups in verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and not let the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed them. Both groups. Those that have a very narrow interpretation of the implication of a, on a particular implication of the gospel, and those that have a very broad view of an implication of the gospel. Neither one is to judge the other. The truth is, both groups were being intolerant of the other. Both groups were judging each other. And the truth is, is, is I'm still intolerant if I'm intolerant of intolerant people. That seems to be the largest group. But there is a true solution. Paul gives it at the beginning of 14 and he gives it again in, in the beginning of chapter 15. Listen in the, to the verse verse in each of those chapters. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Do not quarrel over opinions. Verse 15, I mean, verse 1, chapter 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. You see, the world tells us, make no negative evaluations of other people. Don't let those narrow-minded people change the way in which you live. The gospel says, accept the weak. Notice that's a negative evaluation. The gospel says, adjust you strong, adjust your life to deepen your relationship with people who are different than you. Verse 20 of chapter 14, do not for the sake of the food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. You see, Paul is coming with what everybody hates to hear, a both hand. We always want an either or, a black and white, a narrow interpretation, an easy application. And Paul doesn't give us those. Because community on this side of eternity is a struggle. It's something that has to be worked out on a daily basis. And so he says, both of you make adjustments. We don't make the weaker brother stumble, but we keep preaching the gospel and its implications until they can believe it too. And the weak, and the weak doesn't judge the strong because they already have that freedom in Christ. How are we to bear those who are weak in faith? We're to welcome them. We're to bear them. We're to serve them. This is the call to put, not to put up with weak people, but to bear by seeking to understand them and why their convictions and to be willing to be misunderstood ourselves. It's not an argument we're trying to win, but a brother and sister. And that takes a whole lot longer than a vote. It can never be us versus them. There are only us. Everybody in Christ is an us. 
There are no winners and losers. Everyone in Christ has already won the victory in Christ. That kind of mentality is what destroys the unity of the church. Well, you ever wonder why we tend to hang with people just like us? Truth is, it's just easier. They get me. They're like me. And I get them. It's not hard living with people that are just like us. It's almost impossible, we think, to live with people who are not like us. That's the hard part, isn't it? The, gravi- the natural gravity of the human heart is to go toward those people that agree with us and away from people who are not like us. Personal convictions lead to different practices on the individual level, on the family level, on the church level. You can go into the, the national level of our, our culture is struggling with, and even in the greater church. But think about, think about the way in which we decide to educate our children and, and all of the heat that has been, been pushed toward those that have chosen a different path to educate their children. Think about dating. And just, just recently, the author of Kissing, Dating, Goodbye. How much heat and how little light was in that. Marriage, how one marriage looks radically different than this marriage over here, but they've all got to be the same. Really? How about politics? I remember when I, I first got here, and, and I remember this statement, and I remember the ooze in the crowd. I said that you do know there are Christian Democrats, right? I got that same little giggle. It's uncomfortable. There's, there's a little a little bit of doubt in some minds. And then I reminded people about Daniel Patrick Moynihan sharing the gospel with uh, Peggy Noonan uh, until she heard the gospel and came to faith. Sometimes it's really hard for us because what? We like the like. And so we almost end up in a phone booth where everybody is alike in the phone booth. We don't realize that the most of the world is out there outside the phone booth. Paul says this is true, both inside and outside the church. That's why we have an obligation with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. And then in verse 2, let us please our neighbors for his good. Why? To build him up. Where, does, where do you get the power? Those who, who uh, their whole lives have been Republican, conservative Christians, how in the world do you find the power to have a relationship with a liberal Democrat Christian? I know that sounds like oxymoronic to you. But how does a homeschool family have a relationship with a public school family? How does, how does someone who is committed to courting have relationships with people who are open to dating in their family. The illustrations go on and on in our own church. We don't even have to talk about down the street or around the corner. We can just talk about us. We are so different on so many of these issues. 
Well, you get the power in verse 4 of chapter 15. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have what? Hope. David Chappell wrote a book called A Stone of Hope. It's a quote, the title, uh, from Martin Luther uh, King Jr.'s speech, I Have a Dream, in Washington, D.C. It's where he got the title. And in the book, he has this thesis. He said that uh, liberal white Christians uh, stood silent during segregation in the South because they believed in the goodness of man. That if man was just enlightened enough, they would rise up and fix all of the, of the segregation problems, all the Jim Crow laws that were in the United States. Whereas black evangelical conservatives had hope in the kingdom of God and specifically that the kingdom of God only comes through an intervention of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of believers. Why does Paul bring up hope here? In this context about our differences and how to handle our convictions, secular people hope that working hard enough, working good enough, will make things better. But grace opens our eyes. Opens our eyes to what? It opens eyes that we are all a sinner, that I am a sinner, that you are a sinner. That's a negative evaluation. That I am weak, that you are weak. That's also a negative evaluation. But we are welcomed. That's the gospel. Because of Christ, we are welcomed. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. One of the ways you can evaluate it is ask the person. If they feel unwelcome, you have not yet welcomed them. This is the only hope that will give us endurance to keep at it. Nobody says that in this life we're going to achieve all that God has for us, the church. But we're going to keep at it because we have hope. It's only that in the realism of that hope, it's only in the freedom of that hope, it's only in the certainty of that hope can we welcome those who are different than us, who have different convictions about very important implications of the gospel Our differences are huge problems in the church, but they are also part of a true solution for the church because it's only together can we know Christ fully and see everything that he has for us. Let's take a moment and and ask the Lord to open our hearts to our brothers and sisters that we've been keeping at arm's distance because they are different. Because they raise their kids different or they see the world different or they haven't just worked the implications and the freedoms of Christ that you have together. Father, thank you for coming and meeting us here. Thank you for the grace and mercy you have given us. Thank you for your joyfulness, not just our sorrow of sin, but the freedom that you give us in Christ. But we recognize that that comes in drips and drabs in our understanding, not all at once. And that too is a mercy because it keeps us talking and working together. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you open the doors in this church for people who are not like us, particularly inside the church, as we all have our differences. 
but also as we begin to think about our greater community that is very different than us, who live differently, think differently, in many cases have never even heard of what Jesus has done for them. So help us, Father, to open and welcome them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.